This is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about daddy issues, father figures, and dismantling the paternal mystique. It was early November 2001, so 9-11 was fresh in my mind, which turned out to be kind of a good thing because I could frame my dad's sudden death as we'd had some kind of reconciliation because of the drama of living in New York City, but having your dad be in his hometown of Cleveland. And he was such a strong presence on the phone, like a very calming presence when we didn't know if New York City was going to exist because of all of these planes that were slamming into the World Trade Center. After 9-11, there was a lot of crazy shit happening in the country in general. There was an anthrax mailing. Everybody thought the world was coming to an end. But my dad was very chill about it, and I was 26, about to turn 27, and he had just turned 54. It's early November, and I'm at my office. I'm working at a literary agency in Midtown Manhattan and the phone, the office line rings and I pick it up and it's my younger brother who is probably, I guess he would have been 21 at the time or 22. He was in a state and he seemed to be in shock and he was like, dad's had a heart attack. And I immediately saw the words, he's dead in my, I don't know, just in my mind's eye, if you will, which has happened to me a lot in my life, a declarative statement. I'll see it typed up in my mind. I could tell that he was in shock, and I I intuited that he was driving, so I told him to pull over and just flipped into big sister mode and tried to manage his feelings and his fears as I was trying to gauge what had happened, which apparently was that he was on a treadmill at the gym at 7 a.m. before work, as you do. The irony of this gym was that it was in a hospital. It was attached to a hospital. So Cleveland is a hospital town. It's home to the Cleveland Clinic and university hospitals, several med schools. So it's the one thing that 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 town does right, and there's always some sultan you know, in the cardio <laughs> cardio wing, getting some private treatment. Yeah, he. it didn't matter. So he was, I think because he had this new girlfriend, he wanted to shave off the 25 pounds maybe that he'd gotten in his, his front region. He'd always been a trim guy, but I think middle age catches up to everybody. And so I think that's what that was about because like me... He was not an exercising kind of guy, really. I guess he was. He played golf, and he was into skiing and snowboarding, but the gym thing seemed new to me. 
But it was ironic that he went down in this hospital setting and there was a cardiologist working out right next to him. So somebody was working on his heart and doing CPR and they had the paddles and everything right there. But it still took 45 minutes, or that's what I was told, of physical CPR before he got the heart back. But by then your brain is dead zone. But he had been revived, but that was the only information that we had at the moment. So I had ironically made plans to, or my boyfriend that I was living with at the time, who was also from Cleveland, was planning to drive back to Ohio to go on this camping trip with his own father. So I was just like, okay, I'll hitch a ride with Paul and I'll be at the hospital in 10 hours. <laughs> I'll see you there because it's about an eight-hour drive. And in the meantime, you know, I had this in-shock conversation with my boss who just immediately went into, everything's going to be okay. Heart attacks happen all the time. How old is he? That's not very old. My dad had a heart attack. He has a pacemaker. Everything's going to be okay. Do you need me to call you a flight? And I'm like, no, it's fine. Everything will be fine. I'm just going to drive back to Ohio. No matter what, it'll just be fine. Go to work at 8.30 in the morning. Get there. Get the news that your father's had a heart attack. And then simply drive to Ohio. And that's what we did. My boyfriend was even younger than me. Our relationship was very newly serious. We had been college hookups. And then we I moved to New York like a year in advance. So the relationship was kind of, I don't know, we were really young, but we were living together. So technically we were serious. But that immediately made our relationship super serious. And I remember driving home to this hospital with Paul and thinking, well, maybe this will really cement us and I will feel less anxious about his inability to talk about his love for me or just that feeling of, will we get married? And because I'm a daughter, the only daughter in my family, and I was the oldest, I think that's why my, my brain immediately went to, he'll never walk you down the aisle. Not that I had any plans to get married anytime soon, but it's just this thing that was, in fact, then repeated to me like 30 times by everyone from my mother, grandmother, and just most women <laughs> in, the, in the periphery was just, what a tragedy <laughs> that he'll never see you get married. And I remember we got a speeding ticket on the way to the hospital on Route 80, and my boyfriend told the cops, her father's just had a heart attack. I know that sounds like a cliche, but it's true. And he, the cop gave us a ticket anyway. So we get to the hospital finally, and my dad is hooked up to all these machines, and it's just immediately clear that he's not gonna come back from this even if his eyes weren't fixed and dilated or whatever they say, you can just feel the lack of presence of a 
soul or a consciousness. And I remember my boyfriend was sort of hanging back, really nervous in the hospital right outside the ICU. You have no privacy whatsoever. It's just a curtain and your dying loved one. And my first response was, I just have to get Paul out of here. I can't manage this. I don't want to inflict this serious, heavy thing on him. So I, it just manifested like, I can't take my, my boyfriend away from his father right now because they were supposed to go on this big pheasant hunting trip. <laughs> I wasn't going to keep him from it. So I very stoically was like, I've got this. Let me handle this. And then, in fact, not knowing it was going to be three days before I had him back, which would, would have been the day before the funeral, which is what happened. Ugh. So it was basically coming together. And when I got to this hospital room, my mom was there with my father's girlfriend, who was actually married to someone else. So the fact that sh the girlfriend was there was this drama in and of itself. My parents were divorced for five years. And my parents were in a good place in their relationship after being married for like 20 some years and then transitioning into friendly exes instead of angry exes, which I was grateful for. But this woman just happened to be a nurse. So she took control and had all the best people on it and there were just so many people in the hospital in one of those spillover family rooms, and they'd bring you in there. They brought me in there with my mom and my dad's girlfriend, the doctors, and they were just like, you should know that he's not going to come back from this. And what we try to focus on is getting everybody here so they can say their goodbyes, and then we will... Um, take him off of life support with your permission and then whatever can be salvaged of his body you know it obviously can't be his heart you know then we can have like an organ donor situation <laughs> and I was the person that did that paperwork because my parents weren't married anymore and he had a girlfriend who wasn't his actual wife so I had to be the one to sign everything. And I remember that was a big thing, I think, of stress between my brothers and I, who are both closer in age. There's a five and seven year space between us. Um, so like those three days before we took them off life support were just full of arguments between my brothers and I and my mom being so stressed and trying to, you know, organize how this was all going to work and the just the finding paperwork and finding last will and testament kind of shit, which he actually did have because he was this very organized guy who had had cancer previously and had obviously, you know, been cured of it, but he was somebody that had a lot of plans in place. He had life insurance. He had 
a power of attorney paperwork and all kinds of things that he didn't ultimately need, like long-term illness insurance or palliative care. I don't know. I just remember being like, there's so much shit that these dads buy into. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't even have like a savings account. I don't know. A bunch of his... Not a bunch, but a couple of his close friends came to the hospital and they had to journey through a couple of days. It was hard watching his family, his parents, his stepmom and his his dad, who was in his 80s, come to terms with it, and his brothers and cousins. And there were like 12 people in the room when we let him go, as we called it, and... The weirdest thing was the fact that his heart was beating really regularly and really just strongly, like you could hear it. And I could hear my heart more acutely, like I could hear my heartbeat just for those three days before we just unhooked him from life support and then quickly had the memorial service that a ton of people came to. And I just never wanted that part to end because of all the people you hear from and all that shit about, he was so proud of you, he talked about you constantly. And I knew all that was true. And it was just the heaviness of the sunshine and the piercing sound of somebody's laughter for the first time, or the first time you laugh, or the fact that when my dad was physically dying, because it took him something like 12 hours after we pulled the plug for his body to actually let go, so I went to Denny's with everybody in the family, and they had moons over my hammy, (laughs) (laughs) as you do. And I, I have weird memories of some nurse slipped me some Valiums, for three nights, three nights supply. She's like, don't take more than one of these, but you're gonna need it. And I really fucking did. And it never, I never got to sleep. I was taking anything I could, smoking the pot we found that he had stashed in like every possible crevice of his closet. I mean, it's you immediately find the porn stash. <laughs> Which is so scary that I haven't burned all my journals knowing that you can die. You can just drop dead and everybody you care about and maybe even people that you don't can find your dildos or whatever. That was the lead up to what I call the mania of grief that hasn't ever really abated unless I treat it with medication, which is just that panic of you can't trust that any day is going to be a normal day or that somebody you love won't drop dead. That's really my thing is I'm ready for the funeral. I'm ready for other people's tragedies. I'm ready for my own tragedies. Like the chaos of death. The chaos of death, I feel comfortable in it because it's the great equalizer and it's the one time you kind of feel like you can relate to another person. That show Six Feet Under, which is so brilliant in healing somebody, I think, if you're really into serialized dramatic prestige (laughs) television, which I am, 
I hadn't watched it when when my dad died, but I was at his house during this three-day period where he was hooked up to machines that I would fall asleep with it on, on HBO. And at one point, I remember it was on, and I must have had a dream about whatever person had died on the show for the cold open. And then the phone rings really loud, his, his landline, and I'm on the couch, and I dart awake, and I pick up the phone, and it's Mrs. Hosier? Um, and it was an ad call, but it was before the automated one, so it was an actual human on the other end. And they must have said our name wrong, like, Hosier. Mrs. Hosier, is that you, you know? And I was like, listen, listen to me. The person that you are calling is dead. <laughs> and I was, like, mad about it. And they were just like, oh, 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 I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry. And they hung up. And I just remember seeing Nate Fisher's face as I was having this very strange conversation when he wasn't dead. He was still technically on machines, but mm -hmm. I was just trying to get used to it. And then I watched all of Six Feet Under when it came out. And it just makes me feel much closer to that time. Do you Maybe. ever have dreams about him? I don't have dreams about him, and I wish I did. I'm sure I have, but I mean, honestly, I dose myself with clonopin, so I don't dream. And I really don't dream that much if I'm, if I'm taking that as a sleeping aid. Did you speak at your father's funeral? Yes, I spoke at my father's funeral. I gave the, the final eulogy before we asked a bunch of people to come up and tell stories. There were a lot of people there. He was a beloved boss and colleague, and he did have a couple of really good friends. Traveled with every year, and we did end up like a year later, going out on a houseboat. He always went camping out west, Arizona and New Mexico and Utah. He would go there a lot. So we did a thing where we took his ashes on this houseboat with 10 other people. My brothers and I took a road trip with his ashes from Ohio to Arizona to Lake Powell. And by the time we got through all of those states, literally to the town where we were going to take the bus finally to the dock to get on the boat, and I left them at a diner because we got in such a huge fight, and they called me a fucking bitch, and I just felt so ganged up on, and I hated everything about them. I hitchhiked just so I didn't have to be with them for 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't the ideal coming together of family. And I would say it wasn't until this last year, 2019, until we all really reconciled after I had a book come out about this very experience. Because it was just so painful to ever talk about how things really were when we were coming of age and the complexities of our father's personality and the fact that, you know, he had so many anger issues and hypocrisy, such a duality to his personality. And 
because at the very end we were all in kind of a good place with each other. But then once he died, it was permission for everyone to be irritated and jealous and you think you're so much better. You you think dad loved you better. <laughs> <laughs> or just stuff like that. I don't know. It was very confusing. Yeah. How did they react to the book? I changed my brother's names for the book that I wrote about our coming of age and also the grief associated with losing our dad, and the one brother whose pain isn't central as much as the other brother. He read the book, and he was extremely supportive. He became a father this year for the first time at 40, and just called me after he read the book and said, I want to break the cycle of abuse and emotional abuse and and the inability to talk about our feelings, his own rage related to just being a member of our family, I guess, but also being a man, which which was something that my dad struggled with and is really at the roots of my trying to understand him as a person is that he had so many masculine struggles. He just felt so strongly about being that perfect provider and not being like the strong, not weepy dad or not too emotional, but it was the times when he was really generous, I think, with his his emotion. It wasn't manifesting itself into anger. It was just that vulnerability of, I'm really scared to have cancer, or I was really scared. And one of the reasons why I was so scared was because it was the idea of abandoning you guys. So that's ultimately what he did. <laughs> but I try to I try to think of him running off, you know, like he didn't feel the horror and the embarrassment of physically falling on his face. And we tell ourselves that he was listening to the Beatles, he was listening to Abbey Road on his disc man. So that that has some nice poetic imagery to it. Thanks for listening. Tell Me About Your Father was created and produced by Erin Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson and Matthew Philp. For more information, visit tellmeaboutyourfather.com. Follow us on Twitter at TMAYF Podcast and on Instagram at tellmeaboutyourfather. Call our hotline at 888-318-DADS 24 hours a day and tell us about your father. That's 888-318-DADS. This podcast was inspired by Erin's memoir, Don't Let Me Down, which is available where all good books are sold. Episodes were recorded by Rob Hahn at the Playground Studios in Brooklyn and edited by Chris Gellis and Emma Donoher. Our logo was designed by Cicero de Guzman and illustrated by Richard Verges. Special thanks to Mark Sussman, Jessica Suarez, Michael Vescio and Betsy Lerner.